We're just Oh no sexuals Trying to find a ghost face Judge, jewelry, sex executioners Stalking stalkers and stockings Who never face You're never alone With the horror movie game. Because the Good morning. Good afternoon. Or good evening. We don't discriminate. Time was trapped in a bottle by Jim Croce in 1972. That's a music reference for all you young ones out there. (laughs) Music is a thing that you play and old people get mad. And that just continues till the end of time. Welcome back to the Queers Have Eyes. This is Richard. This is Chase. And we're here to talk to you about The Shining this week. Oh my gosh. We watched this insane documentary in preparation for it. And, you know, I don't know if documentary is the right word. Is it a mockumentary? Sometimes, you know, the research we do for this show is just so much fun. And then... (laughs) We learned important things is the key takeaway. We learned... We learned Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing. It was a big part of this documentary. It's called Room 237. And uh, it really leads in like it's going to be some sort of academic film study. And it just goes And then it just like goes off the rails and is like the moon landing. It did happen, but not the way we know it. (laughs) There's a man who thinks that you can tell that the moon landing was fake footage because he could see a projector light in the background and... By the end of the documentary, they were just like, did you know if you play the movie forward and backwards at the same time, it starts and ends exactly the same? Can you believe that? I can't. (laughs) My God, this movie's magical. It really is magical, but not for those reasons. Um, Speaking of fun research, though, I think we've got some very exciting queer history for you this week. Do we? Oh, yeah, cartoons. Yeah. God, I love This cartoons. week we're covering queer representation in animated series. All right, Richard, let's get into this. So you've been looking up queer representation in animated series. Was there a lot? There was quite a bit, though most of it has happened in the last 14 years or so. Before that, most queer representation was used as a joke in shows like South Park and Futurama and The Simpsons because, uh, well, the Hays Code that lasted from 1938 to 1968, first off, wouldn't allow depictions of homosexuality on television. That didn't stop there being queer coding in shows like Bugs Bunny that started in 1940. They had Bugs Bunny cross-dressing in episodes, and then Bugs and Daffy Duck would kiss their male enemies as a form of humiliation because comedy, as long as queer is a joke, it can be accepted by the general public, I suppose. So through the 70s and into the 90s, we didn't see much queer representation on television. But from 1983 to 1986, however, an animated series called Super Ted featured a gay sidekick, Skeleton, a campy and effeminate sidekick to Texas Pete, could fall apart and put himself back together. But it wasn't openly confirmed that his character was gay until 2014. That is a thing that we have to deal with, I guess, as queer people um, looking at history, because most of the time, the creators wouldn't just openly say, this is a gay character. It, like, this was in 1986, the show ended, and it came out in 2014, that, like, 30 years later, we're saying, they're like, oh, no, no, he was gay, but... That's not really fair to the queer community, I don't think. No, but it's very much a Dumbledore is gay situation. Absolutely. It still happens. Why are we still hiding in closets? Why why can't we just come out and say, hey, this is gay, this is normal, this is something that happens? I think we're moving more towards that 
It did start as comedy in the 2000s with The Simpsons, South Park, Futurama. But we did get, in the year 2000, Queer Duck, the first animated series on TV in the United States, and it featured homosexuality as one of its major themes. We also gained Roger the Alien from American Dad, who had an ambiguous sexuality. Yeah, his sexuality was... yes. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Also dressed manly in air quotes and dressed femininely also in air quotes because clothes have no gender and aliens don't either that's correct (laughs) the 2010s are the decade that really changed the face of queer representation in animation though because december 19th 2014 season 4 episode 13 the series finale of legend of korra was a turning point for queer representation with not a kiss but just a hint at Cora and Asami building a relationship and going on vacation together. This was as close as the animators felt comfortable getting to actual homosexuality on screen. Chase, you informed me that there was hand-holding. There was hand-holding. It was so subtle, I, as a bisexual, didn't even register it. I do know that in the comics, they went on to actually pursue this relationship, but can can we see it on TV? No, not really. It's more of like a trauma bonding vibe, which a lot of queer representation was hidden behind. Yeah. I mean, I if you look at history in the film industry and in television, most queer representation you're going to see is trauma. It's for a long time, the only way that they would put a queer person on television was if they were going to die or get hurt or if they had AIDS. Something had to be wrong with them to villainize them to the general public. In Season 5, Episode 23, on July 6, 2018, Reunited from Steven Universe, we see two female characters, Ruby and Sapphire, tie the knot. This, as far as I can tell, is the first animated queer marriage on television. September 3rd, 2018, Season 10, Episode 13, Come Along With Me, the series finale of Adventure Time, features a kiss between two female characters, Princess Bubblegum and Marceline the Vampire Queen. This feels very much like a cop-out to me, though. I love it. I love that it happened and we need it, but you wait until the series finale of a show to be like, here, they're gay. You finally get this kiss. Maybe I didn't watch Adventure Time, so I'm not really a good person to speak on this. But that feels scared to me that you're waiting till the very end of the show when your ratings aren't going to be affected. It's like, this is it. This is over. The people that are going to love it are going to love it and watch it. And the people that don't are just going to watch everything before that. It's not even just about the the fear, though, because or it being safe because it's the final episode, but like their jobs, like the people who want there to be queer characters, they just aren't going to get to stay on that show anymore if they do that. Right. But it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like that. (laughs) None of this should be like this. Here's a surprise for you. Sometimes children know that they're queer. I knew in kindergarten that I was different, but I didn't have anybody to look up to. I had no representation. I didn't know what I was. I found out in 2012 when I met the first queer person that I ever remember meeting. And I remember the exact moment that I met him. But 2018 is a big year for this queer representation in animation, um, continuing with November 13th, 2018 with the premiere of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Many of the characters from this show do read fluidly on the gender and sexuality spectrums. So in season five in 2020, episode 13, Heart Part Two, the series finale of She-Ra, we see two female characters, Katra and Adora, admit their love for each other before kissing and riding off into the sunset on a winged horse. I think it's a unicorn. Another series finale. Yes, again, series finale, end of the show. Though they did have subtle, I guess, queer, undetermined characters, they were there and you can watch it and you can be like, I identify with that person, but are they outwardly saying, oh, I'm trans, I'm lesbian? I don't think so. The showrunner, uh, Indy Stevenson, did 
try to incorporate gay themes that he thought were incorporated in the 80s series. He says it was very queer-coded. Again, not outwardly, it's very subtle, but this time he said he did it more openly, and I'm very thankful for that. I feel like the 80s were defined by homoeroticism. Very much so. I mean, He-Man yeah. is very queer-coded. Just I haven't watched the entirety of He-Man that was before my time, but from what I know about He-Man, it's very queer. Moving on to 2005, oh, I guess backtracking. Backtracking to 2005, Steven Hillenberg confirmed that SpongeBob SquarePants and Patrick Starr are not homosexual. They are asexual. But there is a great episode where they take care of of a little clam that they find. And they hide diapers in the walls. Okay, <laughs> moving past the diapers in the walls, SpongeBob and Patrick, they take the little baby clam out with a carriage, and other fish are passing by, and a little bubble above their head goes, Sponge plus star equals clam? Question mark. The question was not, why are they together? The question was... Is that's that possible? Is that how biology works? And I think that's very progressive. <laughs> um, I think this was a very important moment in animation. We are... Spongebob is still on the air? Question mark? Are there still I, new episodes of Spongebob? I'm not sure. I've been re-watching season one through five for about 20 years now. So Let me actually find that out. Yeah, so in September 2023... Spongebob was renewed for a 15th season, so this is a writer not waiting until the series finale to confirm something. No, we're openly here. It's there. I think this is- I remember this happening and people being upset about this, but like, you're talking about a sponge who lives in a pineapple under the sea, and- Absorb it in yellow, uh, and Horace is he. If nautical nonsense be something you wish, then drop on the deck and flop like a fish. Okay, so you're talking about a sponge and the life that he lives under sea and you're upset because he's asexual? Question mark. I think that's great because sponges and stars both reproduce asexually. <laughs> so you're, what are you upset about? You're mad to be mad, I think, at this point. Um... In season two of another animated series, The Hollow, uh, they reveal that one of the characters, Adam, is gay. It, this is early on, it's in season two, so they're not waiting till the series finale to confirm. I've never heard of The Hollow. I have also not heard of The Hollow prior to this, but I would like to watch it. I think this is great. Sam King, a writer for DuckTales, uh, which aired in 2017, did after the fact confirm that in season three, episode nine, Called they put a moon lander on Earth um, that Lieutenant Penumbra is a lesbian. I love all this representation. Then, June 6, 2016, on the show The Loud House, we see our first married gay couple on Nickelodeon. Season 1, episode 23, in the form of Howard and Harold McBride, an interracial gay couple who are the adoptive fathers of the main character Clyde McBride. So this is not a main character, it's a supporting character, two of them, but we're seeing that gay marriage can be healthy. Children are seeing gay marriage can be healthy. It doesn't have to be toxic. That's important in my eyes. In Harley Quinn, we have a plethora of representation in the form of bisexuals galore with Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, Catwoman, Cyborgman, Bane, and the Riddler with an undetermined sexuality in Clayface, but there is definitely some man-on-man -man loving in his life. Asexual Frank the Plant, and openly gay and married to the Riddler is Clock King. We also get a lot of representation in Netflix's Big Mouth. There's two bisexuals, Jay and Jesse. There's... And Jesse's mom. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, there's a trans femme character named Natalie. Uh, Elijah is asexual. Allie is pansexual. And Matthew is gay. I will say that Allie being pansexual really rubbed me the wrong way. Not because she's pansexual, but when she was introduced, someone asked her to explain pansexuality. And she was like, 
If you're bisexual, you only like men and women. And if you're pansexual, you like anybody. And I really think that just sort of reinforces this toxic idea that bisexuals um, don't aren't attracted to trans people or non-binary people, which is obviously incorrect. Incorrect. I think that was a bad definition of pansexual. Um, I think they definitely could have just said pansexual is I'm attracted to the person and not their gender. Like, yeah. In May, on May 13th of 2019, my inner child is healed a little bit and extremely happy when in season 22, episode one of Arthur, a TV show that I watched all throughout my childhood, longtime character Mr. Ratburn marries a man. That is some PBS rep right That's there. That's right. That's how you know it's mainstream. Public television is boasting a gay married couple. Of course, it's a rat, so like... Well, he's, he's pretty chill for a rat. That's true. And we love rats here in Chicago. That's right. Visit the rat hole. <laughs> Keep it there. All hail the rat hole. I do think we are kind of greatly lacking trans representation in anim animation. One of the only examples of a main role trans character I could find was in a Netflix film called Wendell and Wild. Um, that character's name is Raul. I don't know a lot about it, but they are openly trans. They are. I actually love that movie. Okay. It's like if Beetlejuice was a mindfuck. It's so good. I don't have anything good to say. <laughs> I don't have anything like intelligent to say about it, but watch Wendell and Wild. It's Jordan Peele. Movie. We like horror movies. Uh, the things that are make you uneasy are really telling <laughs> about who you are as a person. And um, incredible. And Raoul was just this cute little trans man. We do see trans representation, I guess, in characters from Bob's Burgers. We've got Marshmallow Marbles, Glitter, and Cha Cha, who are all transsexual uh, sex workers. Is that an appropriate sentence for me to say? I think so. Transsexual sex workers, but not all trans people are sex workers. So um, I, if you are, I support you. Sex work is real work. Um, but I don't know any trans sex workers personally. I do. And they're not as cool as Marshmallow. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sorry, whoever you are. <laughs> Chase knows. Um, so... We also, there are trans characters in Futurama, South Park, and Family Guy, yeah. but none of those are main characters. No, and they're played pretty, pretty, they're played up for laughs. Quagmire of Giggity fame, his dad comes out as trans in one of the episodes. I did see that. And uh, Brian fucks her. So, okay. Yeah. The bestiality is funny. Yeah, we don't. But, so. We don't talk about it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, outwardly, in the last decade, we have gotten healthy queer representation, and we're receiving more and more. Has it technically been around for a long time? Yes. I mean, down to a lot of Disney characters are queer-coded. I mean, Ursula was designed after um, the iconic drag queen, singer, divine... There's a film called Ferdinand the Bull from 1938 and a film called The Reluctant Dragon from 1941 that are both definitely queer, but not outwardly. They don't say anything about Ferdinand the Bull loving beautiful things and being not toxically masculine, which is the main focus of that. I mean, there are two gay antelopes in Zootopia from 2016 and... I don't know how this connects so much with... I don't know how this so much connects with Walt Disney, but uh, Mickey Mouse was a term for gay men in the 30s, so... Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. It's pretty streets ahead. <laughs> and I think that about wraps it up for queer representation in cartoons. Hopefully we can do another episode on this in the future, and we have more to talk about. Absolutely. Uh, what's your favorite queer animated series uh, or character hit us up on Instagram alright Richard how's the horror news looking? 
I'm very excited this week about horror news. Diablo Cody, the writer behind Jennifer's Body, is also the same woman who wrote the upcoming 80s horror-themed film Lisa Frankenstein. Starring Katherine Newton and Cole Sprouse, the film takes place in 1989 and is a coming-of-rage love story about a misunderstood teenager and her high school crush who happens to be a handsome corpse. After a set of playfully horrific circumstances bring him back to life, the two embark on a murderous journey to find love happiness, and a few missing body parts along the way. But more importantly, during an interview about the upcoming film, Cody lets slip that she's not done with Jennifer's body. Fifteen years after its release in 2009, Jennifer's body has gained a cult following with a new audience. Cody says she was salty at first. At first I just thought, oh where was this audience when I needed it? And then I realized they were like, seven. And then some people who maybe didn't appreciate it at the time have come around and now I'm just like, there's no saltiness, now I'm just happy. She is ready to do a sequel. She's just waiting on a billionaire who believes in her. And girl, same. Uh, until that happens, maybe let's get out there and support Lisa Frankenstein before it's been out for 15 years. Ethan and Joel Cohen, the minds behind Blood Simple 1984, The Big Lebowski 1998, and Oh Brother Where Art Thou 2000, are joining forces again for a bloody horror comedy called Honey Don't. The film stars Margaret Qualley, recently seen in Poor Things, dark humor legend Aubrey Plaza, and Captain America Chris Evans. The film is set in Bakersfield, California, where Evans is a cult leader, Qualley is a private investigator, and Plaza is a mystery woman. She is mysterious. And the rest of the plot is still under wraps, but I look forward to finding out more in the future. A new theatrical trailer for Lovely, Dark, and Deep, written and directed by Teresa Sutherland in her directorial debut, has dropped. The trailer is intense and fills you with dread, giving audiences a new reason to fear the woods. This terrifying mystery takes place in a national forest, and I know it's going to make me never want to visit one. Lennon seizes the opportunity to assume the coveted role of a backcountry ranger at a remote outpost. While adapting to her solitary existence in the wilderness, she becomes aware of a lurking, sinister presence. Driven by the need for answers, Lennon embarks on a journey through the ominous terrain, seeking to unveil the long-standing mystery that has haunted her since childhood. From XYZ Films, starring Georgina Campbell from 2022's Barbarian, Nick Blood and Wai Ching Ho, who Chase and I actually met while bartending at our last job together. The film hits theaters February 22nd, and I'm excited to be even more scared of the woods. Like January 6th on steroids, the scariest movie you might see in 2024, War Games, isn't a horror film. It's based on the real horror, existing in 2024. Like we said in our first episode, reality is the real horror, and director Tony Gerber is going to put that horror right in our faces with this thriller. Two years after the January 6, 2021 insurrection, a collection of current and former U.S. intelligence, agents, army veterans, defense specialists, senators, and high-ranking advisors meet near the U.S. Capitol to participate in a secret national security exercise overseen by a nonpartisan veterans organization called Vet Voice. With concerns running high that the next real-life insurrection could involve members of the active-duty military, this unscripted exercise was concocted to see how the federal government might respond to a contested presidential election in 2024, and another attempt to stop the peaceful transfer of power on January 6, 2025. This time, the loser of the presidential race openly calls for rebellion by encouraging military members to ignore orders from the president and take up arms against their countrymen. Using a former governor, two U.S. senators, retired generals, soldiers, and members of the CIA, the emotion, fear, and truth are real because they actually live them. This film premiered at Sundance Film Festival on January 23, 2024. There is not yet a theatrical release, but I look forward to that. Blumhouse joins forces with Stanley Hotel to create a true horror destination. According to Governor Jared Polis and the Colorado Office of Film, Television, and Media, a division of the Colorado Office of Economic Development and International Trade, Blumhouse will create a 10,000-plus square foot Stanley Film Center exhibit space in the Stanley Hotel in Estes, Colorado, the same location that sparked Stephen King to write The Shining. 
Blumhouse plans to curate exhibits based around the company's extensive catalog of popular franchises from film, television, and gaming. The Stanley Hotel is hallowed ground for horror fans, and that makes this presence at the Stanley Film Center a natural extension for Blumhouse. Fans are going to get closer than ever before to their favorite films, though they may want to keep their distance with a few of the items in our collection. We're excited to get to work, but first we need to make it out of the hedge maze, said Blumhouse CEO Jason Bloom. The main Stanley Film Center building will be at least 67,000 square feet, and it is estimated to cost more than $70 million to complete and furnish. It's interesting that he said they need to make it out of the hedge maze, because that hedge maze is subpar. Don't go there and expect a cool hedge maze, guys. (laughs) It's up to your knees, and it's very sparse, and you'd be better off getting lost walking through the gardens in the back. Is that all you have to say about horror news this week, Chase? Yeah. Um, also, Cole Sprouse? Gross. Hey, Cole, if you're listening to this, that's not the same opinion that I share. Hey, Love, Cole, Richard. If you're listening to this, put out your cigarette. No one's impressed. <laughs> all right. I think it's time to jump right into our queer icon, Chase. I'm so excited about this one. And our queer icon for the week, drumroll please is Melissa Etheridge, one of rock music's greatest female icons, and today she's becoming a Queers Have Eyes queer icon. Richard, do you have 11 reasons why Melissa Etheridge is a queer icon? Uh, Yes, Chase, I do. One, Melissa's self-titled debut album went certified double platinum, and there's just something about naming a project after yourself that is inherently queer. And I'm still disappointed that Chase wouldn't let me call this podcast the Richard Stewart Opinion Hour featuring Chase. We can talk about it. Two, she won her first Grammy in 1992 for the best female rock vocal with her definitely not queer song, Ain't It Heavy, with lyrics like, Sometimes I know that it's never enough. Survival is fine, but satisfaction is rough. I try with an angel tonight. Spread these wings and I'm on for the ride. Cruise these streets where my innocence hides. There's some things you can't deny. What is it about this human condition? I need some kind of promise, some kind of submission tonight. Queer. Dirty. Ooh. Three. On January 20th, 1993, Melissa Etheridge announced to the world that she was a lesbian by coming out at the Triangle Ball, an LGBTQ plus focused celebration of the inauguration of President Bill Clinton before he was caught cheating on his wife and ruined a young intern's life publicly. She credits Katie Lang coming out on the cover of The Advocate the year before as her inspiration. A proclamation like hers was completely rare and taboo for a mainstream artist during that time. Four, in 1993, when Colorado passed Amendment 2, holding that laws outlawing sodomy were constitutional, she boycotted playing shows there. This episode is very Colorado-in. It really is. A great place. Smoke some weed. Five, she was catapulted to international fame with the release of her openly sapphic album, Yes I Am, on September 21st, 1993. This is the first album that I remember hearing of hers with some of her most well-known songs, I'm the Only One and Come to My Window, which won her her second Grammy. She released four more albums between 1995 and 2004. Which is the second biggest thing in queer history in 1993, only to my birth. Six, in 1994, she was honored by VH1 for her work with the LA Shanty Project, a nonprofit human services agency that's goals are to provide peer support for those living with HIV, AIDS, cancer, and other life-threatening illnesses. During the appearance, she performed I'm the Only One and a duet of the Rolling Stones song Honky Tonk Woman with Sammy Hagar. 7. She was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2004 and underwent surgery and chemotherapy, making her return to the stage for the first time at the 2005 Grammy Awards when she performed in a Janis Joplin tribute with Joss Stone. Joss started the performance with Crybaby, and Melissa joined her on stage, bald from chemotherapy, to perform Peace of My Heart. This is an iconic moment in queer history that I do actually remember seeing on TV. Number eight, India Ari wrote a song about her called I Am Not My Hair. Melissa Etheridge iconically told a whole generation of women on live television that their hair doesn't define them just by showing up and doing what she does best. 
Number 9. She has had 15 Grammy nominations and won an Academy Award for Best Original Song in 2006 for I Need to Wake Up from the film An Inconvenient Truth, making her G.O. of her EGOT. Melissa, we believe in you. Number 10. In 2011, Melissa made her Broadway debut, replacing the irreplaceable Billy Joe Armstrong as St. Jimmy in Green Day's hit musical American Idiot. Replacing Billy Joe Armstrong as St. Jimmy in Green Day's hit musical American Idiot, as well as receiving her star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame the same year. But I think we all know which one of those things is cooler. <laughs> if you listen to episode four, you'll know. Number 11. In 2014, she partnered with a medical marijuana dispensary to create cannabis-infused wine, claiming that cannabis saved her life and helped her battle with cancer and hoping to help end the stigma surrounding medical marijuana. She has been putting in that work for over a decade now, and marijuana is still not federally legal. Gross. 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 We'll Get your shit it, together. Just make it legal. Weed is good. Weed is gay. Weed is good. Healthy. Healthy. All right, Chase, that is all we have for our queer icon, Melissa Etheridge. She's so cool. Very cool. I, the, my whole life, she's been out and queer. That's, that's wild. As a two-year-old, I remember her coming No, I'm just kidding. I don't remember <laughs> her coming out. Um, but she is very cool. Um, she, I think, is still releasing music. She recent, or she, during the Pulse nightclub, horrors she released a song called pulse to raise money for the families of the victims of the pulse shooting iconic iconic all right chase i think it's time for us to delve into one of the most iconic horror films of all time the shining all right let's get to it The movie opens on Jack Torrance, driving on the scariest road in the world to get to an interview at the Overlook Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. He arrives just in time to publicly read Playgirl magazine. His wife Wendy reads Catcher in the Rye as her small son Danny catches some white bread for lunch. He eats the sandwich like a complete psychopath, foreshadowing the psychological horrors to come. They agree staying at the hotel all winter is no worse than their current shitty life in Denver. Weed wasn't legal yet, and Dad is a total dick. Jack nailed the interview, I guess, and can now give up his brand new teaching job to write a novel while his wife does all the hotel caretaking for the next six months, which is basically the dream. His new manager is like, oh, BT dubs, this place will make you crazy and has done it before. Uh, don't kill your family. And Jack's like, dude, I don't even care. As long as I can write my shitty novel, when do I start? Back in Denver, Danny is playing finger talkie with imaginary friend Tony in the mirror, and it's revealed that he can see the future, and their new home is haunted as shit. He freaks out and goes catatonic. A doctor comes in to check out Danny, but she's fucking terrible at her job and does legit nothing when Wendy tells her Jack is an abusive alcoholic and they moved recently to cover it up. Your kid is totally fine. Your copay will be $100, 70s money, please. Closing day. The family drives up the mountain having a light-hearted chat about cannibals. They arrive and the manager shows them around, having a light-hearted discussion about the genocide-themed decor and name-dropping like a motherfucker. All the hotel's workers are headed out for the year. Danny plays in the game room and sees a pair of spooky little girls that he doesn't seem to want to play with. The manager takes Jack and Wendy around the property, bragging about all the natives they had to murder to build the hotel on their burial ground, passing the maze that IRL is more akin to the one in the book than the one in the movie. Then, he takes them to the kitchen and grossly under-emphasizes how hard it will be to prepare the huge stores of bulk food the hotel is leaving them. Scatman Crothers, the head chef, shows up and so does Danny, and Scatman gets called out for being psychic but plays it off like a champ and he and Danny go get ice cream. While snacking, he tells Danny they can both shine and Danny's like, cool, but the fucking ghosts? And Scatman says, dude, they can't hurt you, but also stay out of the murder room, haha, <laughs> I mean the stupid dumb room where only idiots go. A month later... Danny's riding around a hotel in a big wheel, on the most obnoxious carpet known to interior decorating. Back in the suite, Wendy is a totally baller wife and brings Jack breakfast in bed. But he was up late, accomplishing fuck all for his novel, and pretends to not hate that she's lovingly encouraging good writing practices. They both lie about loving the hotel, and Jack says, I feel like I've been here before, which he kinda has, but we don't know that for a fact yet, or really ever. 
Later, Jack hangs out in the Colorado Lounge, a massive room that gets the only good light in the building, and he set up his typewriter there. Instead of writing, he plays catch with himself, because who would play with a child? Wendy, who actually loves their child, plays with Danny in the maze. Jack stares down at a model of the maze, all creepy-like, instead of writing his fucking novel, which is the whole reason why he's there. Tuesday. Wendy finds out there's going to be a huge snowstorm while opening a can of fruit so big they'll be sick of it before they're halfway done. Danny rides around some more, and I bet he's bored. He passes the stupid dumb room and contemplates being an idiot, but the ghost girls scare him away. Jack is back in the Colorado lounge, and Wendy, forgetting he hates her, comes by to chat. How dare she visit the largest building in the room that he's taken for himself. What a bitch. He tells her to get the fuck out, and she does, but I would have stayed out of spite. Thursday. Wendy and Danny play in a snowstorm for some reason. Jack watches them like a level 68 creeper, desperate to level up one more time. Dude is losing his shit. Saturday. Two days later, the storm gets worse, and the phone lines go down. Because she's the only one doing any work around here, Wendy calls the U.S. Fire Service on the radio and the fireman hits on her, I guess? I don't know, the vibe was weird, but he tells her to keep the radio on just in case. Danny rides around some more and finds the girls who are like, hey, you must be bored of riding your bike in circles, come play with us. But Danny bounces because they're, like, splattered a little too all over the hallway. Mr. Crothers says they're not real, remember? Danny says to himself, but, like, maybe they are real, because he keeps seeing them. Monday. Wendy and Danny are watching TV somehow. I don't know, the TV has no cord. Danny wants to go play with his fire truck, and Wendy says okay, but it's in the room with Dad, and uh, don't wake him up. Danny does. Uh, they have a really strained conversation where Danny asks if he's gonna kill them, and Jack's face says, oh yeah, for sure, little dude. Wednesday. Today, Danny reveals that the moon landing was actually faked by wearing a sweater, which is a very low-key way to announce that to the world. Then, because he's bored of not doing stupid things, he goes into the room that Scatman Crothers told him was actually fine to go in. Oh no, wait, it was the opposite. Wendy finds Jack slumped over his typewriter, having a nightmare, or fantasy, or whatever, uh, about chopping them up, um, and he's like super upset it wasn't real when he wakes up. Then Danny shows up all fucked up and sucking his thumb, and Wendy freaks out because obviously Jack did this. Finally. Wake up, girl. They go off and Jack hits the party room to become the party. He needs a drink and ghost psychosis obliges as the bartender appears to serve him free drinks and listen to his bullshit about how abusing Danny wasn't abuse because he was drunk. The bartender knows where his ghost tips are coming from and says a bunch of hella neutral things that bartenders should try at home. Wendy breaks his delusion by coming in crying with a baseball bat, which is how I engage in sport as well. She says there's a crazy woman in the hotel who hurt Danny. In Florida, Scatman lounges like a G, drinking, watching the news under some titty paintings. There's a snowstorm in the Rockies, and he gets the vibe shine from Danny that he should probably check on shit. The only decent person in this movie, he drops everything to go to the Overlook. Back at the hotel, Jack goes to the idiot room, where he's tricked into making out with a rotting bath lady who looked kinda hot from across the room, but I think it was the residual riz from the fucking sick-ass green and purple decor. Danny drools and shakes, and someone should provoke that doctor lady's medical license yesterday, cause that's not normal. Jack goes back home and tells Wendy the kid probably fucked himself up for no reason whatsoever, and no, I didn't just make out with bog trash. Wendy's like, we need to get him to a hospital, and Jack's like, if you leave, who will do all of the shit here? My name's on the job contract, and I certainly won't do it. Danny writes red rum on a mirror because he's not in school and his parents suck. Jax leaves and smashes his way to have more ghost drinks in the crazy room with his imaginary friends. The party room is filled with partying ghosts, and he chills out. The ghost bartender welcomes him back, and the ghost server creams his jacket. They both go to the bathroom to rub one out of Jack's clothes. The bathroom server ghost says, hey, you're the caretaker here. And Jack's like, uh, no, you're Grady. You're the murderous caretaker. And Grady's like, no, you're the caretaker here. I'd know. I'm always here. And Jack's like, no, I'm not. I haven't murdered my family. And Grady says, hey, you should murder your family. And Jack's like, oh yeah, laters. I gotta go murder my family. In the suite, Wendy finally realizes she can and probably should do things without Jack and decides to take Danny down the mountain, snowstorm or not. Danny is uninterested in doing anything but saying red rum and retreating further into himself. Jack fucks up the emergency radio. 8 a.m. Wendy takes her bat to the Colorado Lounge to tell Jack she's going. He's not there, but she sneaks a peek at his shit novel for the first time. It's just, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Like, a bazillion times, which is weird because he hasn't done shit all winter. And also weird because he's legitimately insane. Jack pops out from around the corner, angry! That she thinks his novel sucks. 
but we all do. He backs her up the grand staircase, threatening to kill her. She smacks him down the stairs with a bat and drags him to the dry storage fridge and locks him in, which honestly she should have done on day one. Locked up good, she tells Jack her and Danny are going down the mountain. Jack laughs like a psycho, cause he fucked up the radio and the winter vehicle, so they're stuck. She checks and yep, they're stuck. 4pm. In the locker, Jack is scolded by the waiter Grady, who's crying in the walk-in, a time-honored tradition, about how Jack forgot to murder his family? Jack says, okay, okay, I'll murder him, I'm sorry. And Grady's like, okay, but like, do it quick, before the outside party arrives. Grady lets him out. At the apartment, Wendy sleeps in, which is wild because I couldn't in that sitch, and Danny wakes her up warning Red Rum, which she doesn't get until she sees its reflection in the mirror. Oh, murder. We really gotta hurry up and put this kid in school. And also maybe let's run from Jack, who's totally gonna kill us. Jack has an axe, and he ain't axin', no questions. It's murder time. Wendy and Danny lock themselves in the bathroom, and Wendy sends Danny out the window to get frostbite and hypothermia with dignity. Jack axes through the door and says, it's morphin' time, and Wendy screams because she doesn't get that reference. Jack gives up on his axing because he hears that Scatman is on the snowcat and pulling up. He decides his axing is better served elsewhere. And then he totally axes Scatman, who just took like a crazy long trip for what? To be murdered super quick? I guess so. Danny doesn't like that and leaves his nearby hiding place, which he could have totally just stayed in, and runs into the snowy hedge maze. Wendy goes out to look for Danny, but only finds a blood elevator and rudely interrupts a furry giving a blowy. Jack follows the footprints through the maze, but he's pretty injured and apparently stupid because Danny tricks him with some Bugs Bunny shit and Jack gets lost. Danny runs to Wendy, and they escape on Scatman's snowcat. Jack freezes to death in a very unflattering pose. Music plays as the camera hovers over an old picture from the summer before the first Overlook murders. And there's Jack, which raises a ton of questions that the rolling credits don't answer at all. I wish our studio was furnished like the Overlook Hotel. Minus all the Native American stuff that wouldn't be super authentic to that's our vibe. That's true, but that purple and green carpet, that's so sexy. And that bathroom, the green fixtures, like, why are any bathroom fixtures white? You just, Literally. We gotta... It just shows the dirt too much. Who's gonna clean that? Me? Not me. Not just, me. I, I do. I, I have to say. I will buy any gadget that tells me it's easier to clean my bathroom. True. Any the tagline <laughs> for 1981's The Shining was iconic terror from the number one best-selling author. But my favorite was all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Rotten Tomatoes gave the Shining, 83%. IMDb gave it an 8.4 out of 10. The Queers Have Eyes only gave it a 6.9 out of 11. Don't with... say only. That's over halfway there, but that's just the way that our rating system works. That's true. It's Jack Nicholson being an ugly motherfucker. That really that, tanked that it. That tanked the whole thing. Tanked Sorry, whole he's sport. creepy. He's ugly. He's... We'll get into it, though. His hairline with his eyebrows... His eyebrows go up to the hairline, and it makes like a wiggly pattern, and it really it's upsets me. It's a caterpillar. Me. How did we reach that 6.9, Chase? Well, we're gonna tell you. 1. Traumability. 10 out of 11. Between the toxic relationship, capitalism, and the patriarchy, this movie score is pretty high. And then once you remember the uh, rotting bath lady... <laughs> Chase, how dumb is the protagonist? For this one, we gave it a 7 out of 11. Danny is wrecked with dumb little kidness, but that backwards through the snow maneuver was pretty clever for a hypothermic abused child. I wouldn't have come up with that. No, no. Halloween costume realness. We've given this an 8 out of 11. Um, I actually did this. Uh, two of my friends dressed as the Grady twins. Great costume, if you have two people. Um, I dressed as Danny. Also a great costume, especially if you throw your money into buying a big wheel like I did. And then hope that you don't have testicular torsion two days before Halloween and can't ride it. Um, you what? could... What happened to your big wheel? We've never gotten into this. Where is your big wheel? It's, right it's now? at my mom's house. I did not bring it to Chicago with me. But I think if I ever drive from home to Chicago, I should bring it. Can you, you imagine me just... Just rolling up to work on your... <laughs> on my big wheel. Perfect. This is the time. Um, 
I, I, any one of these characters would be a great Halloween costume. Just yeah. have a long ass ash for Shelly Duvall. Wendy. I'm Wendy. Uh, carry the, around an axe. <laughs> be the bartender. Be Grady the waiter. Mm. You can just hit people with big loads of whatever that alcohol was. <laughs> yeah. And if there are any other bartenders out there, being that professional and emotionally absent is like the move. The move. <laughs> um, Richard, did they even go to Juilliard? I I have to give this the highest score we've done so far with an 11 out of 11. Um, the acting in this film is truly iconic. Um, but you, do, I do have to evaluate whether it's acting or just like real life trauma because like Stanley Kubrick treated Shelley Duvall horribly on the set. Uh, they did hundreds of takes of every scene, just doing it over and over and over again. And because Stanley Kubrick was trying to achieve perfection, either way, it came out great and will stand the test of time. Daddy, is that you? For this, we gave it a 5 out of 11. Jack Nicholson is never daddy. Sorry, not sorry. He's creepy. But I fully believe that if the naked poster ladies were in a room with Scatman Crothers, they would get it. And get it in. Get it. <laughs> get out. Anyway, Stream and Cream, 2 out of 11. Absolutely not. Do not watch this film if you're trying to get laid. There is nothing sexy about it. Uh... If there is anything that might turn you on, like the sexy lady in room 237, it is immediately turned on its head and makes you want to vomit. Blech. Jump scares. For this one, we gave it another 2 out of 11. The Grady girls painting the hallway was sudden and effective, but not a true jump scare. And the bath lady suddenly being rotted is more of an ick than an ah. Can I make this on an iPhone? Zero out of 11. We don't have it in us. This is a cinematic masterpiece, and I could not make this on my iPhone. I don't have the time to do 160 takes, nor do I have 160 different doors to replace. Nor do I have that much room on my phone to record these things. <laughs> that, too. Ghost face. We gave it 11 out of 11. Ignoring the sexual connotations of this category, Shelley Duvall and behind the door while Jack Nicholson is chopping through it, and Danny frozen in terror in front of the mirror are iconic horror O-faces. Definitely. Scream queens? We've given this an 11 out of 11. Shelley Duvall, our queen, she does make me scream. I really, truly believe she was terrified of everything, and I, I don't know. that. That's not just because Stanley Kubrick tormented her. I think she's just incredible. She's super incredible. Now the queers have eyes. What did our queer eyes see? 11 out of 11. 11 out of 11. One, Shelley Duvall's cigarette. Gay. Two, Jack is reading Playgirl in the Overlook lobby. Gay. Three, Jack and Wendy are trapped in a loveless hetero marriage. Gay. Wendy does all the work with no play, making her a dull boy. Gay. Five, the green bathroom has lace curtains. Gay. Gay. Six, the sexual chemistry between Jack and the bartender. Gay. Seven, Grady drops a creamy load on Jack in the party. Gay. Eight, Grady rubs Jack in the men's room. Gay. Nine, Ghostman receives a blowy from a bear. Gay. Ten, Jack receives a frozen bukkake. Gay. And eleven, Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing. Gay. Which brings us to 11 out of 11 gay. 11, it is gay. This film was a little harder to <laughs> make queer, because there were, were less queer elements. Or maybe it's because it's such an iconic film we didn't want to ruin it, I don't know, but... Yeah, the... there was... Oh, there was nothing. There was nothing. It's about... A bad straight marriage. It really is. And then there's trauma. about a child who is just too young to exhibit gayness. I don't know. I don't know. I I really wanted to make a joke about a man living in his throat, but I couldn't do it. No, I'm glad we didn't. It's low hanging fruit, and we're better than and that. We are better than that. Our so last... instead, it was Shelley's cigarette. Our last point was Stanley Kubrick. 
fake the moon landing, though. Did he? He. The I world think, may never know. I mean, why else would that child be wearing an Apollo 11 shirt? You know what I mean? That's true. Um, the, there are so many signs. There's a sign on the door that says room number, and we all know that room number means... Well, it was abbreviated number in O. Room, no, moon. Yeah, but we just obviously threw another N in just, there. They connect. Yeah. I don't know where the R went, but... It's on vacation. <laughs> Not in the Overlook. Somewhere warmer. Room, no R, moon. That I think that's this, the math there. Um, if you want a good laugh, watch Room 237. Or yeah. don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. It's not a documentary, despite what it says on the title card. I, I don't know. I really love this movie. I, I agree. It's one of the most iconic, iconic films of all time, so what's not to love? Yeah, I've seen it a bunch before. Actually, when we went to put in this movie, Richard brought over a copy of The Shining and put it went to go put it in my PlayStation and The Shining was already in there. Yeah. Chase's copy of The Shining was already in the player, so... Which is weird because normally it's Step Brothers. This was a sign from the universe. The Just like... What's another sign about him faking the moon landing? <laughs> uh, the carpet changed direction. Just like the carpet changing directions was another sign that Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing. What was interesting about The Shining is that I know how The Shining ends. I know he freezes to death in a maze, and I know that Shelly and Danny escape, and... I love that we're just calling her Shelly. It's Wendy. <laughs> Shelly and Danny escaped, and <laughs> it was still extremely tense. I was... This... I, I feel the tension the entire time, every time I watch. Also, who doesn't want to go into a hedge maze like that? You tried, it's non-existent. Yeah, it's non-existent. But it's fine, because somewhere out there, there's a hedge maze that we can totally go to. Have you seen Saltburn yet? I have not seen Saltburn. Oh my Salt god, watch Saltburn. Apparently Salt I have to watch Drink Salt the bath water, Chase. Watch Saltburn. I really like to watch things that have been out for at least ten years. Heard. Well, I, I think we've strayed from the topic quite a bit. My fault. So sorry. Um, it's okay. The Shining. Great movie. Jack Nicholson is such an amazing actor. Incredible. It, was he born creepy, or did he have creepiness thrust upon him? Ugh. Hope he doesn't thrust his creepiness upon me. That's you know what? I, I would allow say. it. Jack Nicholson. Young Jack Nicholson, not current Jack Nicholson. Sorry. Like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Jack Nicholson? Yes, absolutely. Can get it? Can get it. One thing about The Shining is that uh, it desperately makes me want a typewriter. And makes me extremely grateful that I've never had to deal with the typewriter. Because all of those pages look fucked. You just have to keep moving it over and over all and over again. All work, no again. play makes Jack a dull boy. All work, no play makes Jack a dull boy. That'd make a really great club song. All work, no play makes Jack a dull boy. All work, no play makes Jack a dull boy. All work, no play makes Jack a dull boy. drugs to make this song about All right, let's wrap this up, Chase. Thanks for joining us this week on The Queers Have Eyes. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Queers Have Eyes for a special Valentine's Day treat. Our first video podcast, where we watch My Bloody Valentine 1981, followed by My Bloody Valentine 2009. And we look hot as fuck. But not as hot as Jensen Ackles and Kerr Smith. Boys, if you're listening... How you doing? If you're looking for a box to put your heart in, here I am. And to our listeners, if you're still here, remember, stay queer and keep your eyes open.